Data engineering allows a company to take advantage of the large quantities of data that the company has generated. In many companies, new data has been produced rapidly for many years, but the company has not been able to take full advantage of it. Creating large data sets does not provide immediate value for a company. A company needs to perform data engineering and data science to take full advantage of that data. When data gets generated, it is stored in a database, a data lake, or an API backend like Google Analytics. In order to manipulate that data, it is often pulled into a data warehouse. A data warehouse provides fast access time to large quantities of data. Pulling data from a source like a database or a data lake into a data warehouse requires a process known as extract and load. Once the data is in the data warehouse, it may also undergo a transform, which enriches the data and puts it in a format that is easier to make use of. Once data is in a data warehouse, it can be used to build models, interactive dashboards, and Jupyter notebooks. The data engineering lifecycle has many different components, which is why data engineering can often be intimidating to a company that is trying to make use of their data. Meltano is a project with the goal of providing a system of conventions for managing the data engineering lifecycle. Meltano was started by GitLab, and the Meltano project has some strategic similarities to GitLab. Danielle Morell is the general manager of Meltano at GitLab. She joins the show to discuss the world of data engineering and the architecture of Meltano. We touch on the different components of a data engineering pipeline and the most acute pain points for data engineers. If you're looking for all of our episodes on data engineering, check out the Software Engineering Daily apps for iOS or Android. We just refactored the Android app. Both the apps are in good shape, and you can find all the episodes there. You can find episodes about Kafka or about Amazon Web Services or about all kinds of different technologies that relate to data engineering, and they're indexed. You can find related links and comments and some community features. Also, Find Collabs is the company I'm working on. Find Collabs is a place to find collaborators and build projects. If you have an idea for a project, you can post that project on Find Collabs and find other people to work with. We're also having an online hackathon with $2,500 in prizes. So if you're looking for a project to work on or you're looking for other collaborators for your project, check out Find Collabs and enter into our hackathon. I'd love to see you on Find Collabs and let's get on with this episode. Danielle Morell, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you for having me. You work at GitLab, and before we talk about Meltano, which is what you work on specifically at GitLab, I'd like to talk about GitLab's initial product, which is called GitLab. We did a show about that a while ago, and GitLab is an integrated monolithic stack for software development. It has version control, logging, continuous integration, many other features. But the different features can be swapped out for other tools. And there are lots of good tools that people can piece together to make their own ideal workflow, but oftentimes they will take GitLab for an out-of-the-box experience. Why do people use GitLab? 
So it's funny you're asking me this because I operate very separately from the rest of the company. So I will say I may not be the best spokesperson, but a lot of times it's either cost or flexibility. So obviously GitLab's open source. Sometimes people don't want to be using proprietary solutions and GitLab is a really affordable option for a lot of teams that are just getting started with some of these features. Yeah, I think what I was getting at was the model of a large integrated environment with the swappable components this is not it's not a common type of project in the open source world cuz usually open source projects are like a narrow tool like a tool for configuration management or package installation and gitlab is this large recomposable thing which seems analogous to meltano why do you think this pattern of an out of the box solution that is modular why is that a useful pattern? I see what you're saying in the connection to Meltano. So yeah, I mean, in the case of Meltano and in the case of GitLab, being able to connect things together is painful. So it's not just necessarily snapped together in a lot of cases. So being able to offer an integrated end-to-end solution can become almost like another product feature overarching the bigger picture. So with Meltano, we are piecing together a lot of good pieces of open source software that you can totally use separately but you may not want to have to administer or may not have a person to administer the connections between that. And it's similar with GitLab. GitLab is for software development and deployment. Meltano is for data engineering. How do those two domains compare to one another? Like, you know, deployment and release process versus the process that a data engineer goes through? Well, I think the deployment and release process is much more sophisticated in the kind of classical software engineering world. I think data engineering, data analysis, that whole world kind of crosses a lot more disciplines and it's still being sorted out. So you know what the workflow should look like is different depending on where you go. So data engineers often end up rebuilding pipelines from scratch each place they go. There's not as many accepted, broadly used norms. So we can bring some of those norms from software engineering to the data world. And as we know, they save people a ton of time and a ton of pain. How do most companies do data engineering and data science today? Well, there's some big components. So they have to have somewhere to store their data. And that could be anything from you know, a small server to some massive tool. It really depends on the company. But you fundamentally got storage, extraction of the data. You got to stick it in some kind of tool to process and do analysis. You get the beautiful dashboard. And a lot of people think it stops there. But actually, a huge part of what's happening with data engineering is building some kind of recurring process or exception-based pipeline as kicking off some other business automation or business process. So right now, there is a huge proliferation of tools. So there's not any one way. And we think that we might be moving more in that direction of consolidation. You've probably seen some of the M&A that's happened the past few weeks with Tableau and with Looker. But there's a huge amount of tools in each one of those buckets. So the market map for what's out there in terms of products you could adopt is, is massive. What are the most acute pain points in data engineering? I think the pain point that I notice the most with our customers is not so much of a technology problem as a relationship problem. You've got a data engineer who's setting up a pipeline, but the end user of the data is not the engineer himself or herself. It's usually an analyst or an executive looking to make a decision. So the amount of steps you have to go through both from a technology perspective and from a communication perspective to get something that actually delivers value it's pretty challenging right now. There's not a lot of reusable ways to convey business logic. And so I think you end up in situations where people spend a lot of time building something 
that then isn't very useful. And so there's just a, a lot of iteration and th- that whole process takes a lot longer than it should. Remarkably, that was the same case four years ago, I think, when I when I started the podcast. Why does it feel like data engineering or data science is like trapped in, it's like enmeshed in amber? I mean, it d- does, doesn't <laughs> seem to, to evolve. And we seem to have these same perennial problems. It, it, has it been improving somehow? I think it's improving. I think that it starts with the business people becoming more comfortable trusting the data engineer. You've got to remember, like we're dealing with probably the laggard part of a lot of these businesses in the case of the decisions this data is powering. So as much as I want them to adopt all this technology, I kind of also can see why they might move slowly because they may be doing things like watering crops based on this data or moving million dollar shipping containers or moving cars. You know, these are things where getting it wrong has these really real world consequences. And so as a result, there's a lot of risk aversion. So I think that's why it's moving slowly. Meltano is an acronym. It's an acronym for the workflow of the data lifecycle. What is the data lifecycle? Well, first of all, I don't know. We might have to get away from this acronym at some point. So just <laughs> caveat that. I, I think acronym names are kind of interesting sometimes. The data lifecycle is just kind of dealing with the idea of going from some raw set of data or even sensors before the data is created all the way through the process of pulling that into some system where you can then analyze it. Human beings in the business process are at that point probably looking at it manually and saying, okay, how do we model this? What does it all mean? Creating something repeatable and shareable like a notebook. And then ultimately orchestration, the O of Maltano deals with the entire automation process, which then is an entire other life cycle kind of off in the business process world. But it's really the data life cycle is going from sensors or raw data to some kind of final output that can then be used for to create value. I think Meltano is, a, is an acronym for Model, Extract, Load, Transform, Analyze, Notebook, Orchestrate. So as we both know, the entire data engineering world is so gigantic that even these seven words that are acronymically arranged in to spell out Meltano, this is not the full scope of data engineering. My sense is that Meltano is a tool that it's for a company that perhaps has several different databases, maybe some of them are operational databases, maybe some of them are databases where they've been throwing log data in, they've got kind of like a set of databases, maybe a data lake, and they want to do things with that data lake or those databases. Is that like kind of an accurate description of the the day one customer? Yes, absolutely. Okay. So what are the prototypical users of Meltano, like the people at this company that have a database and or a data lake? Yeah, so they're probably dealing with either information about how their business is operating or how their customers are coming to them. So the two buckets that we're seeing the most is business operations, where it might be, we want to be able to basically build our own ERP. We want to see how everything that's happening in the company from product creation to revenue collection ties together. And we don't want to spend a fortune on something out of the box or spend you know, 10, 10 months, I don't know how long the engagement is now, but consulting engagement to get that spun up. We want to do it ourselves. So that's like the business operations world. A subset of that that we think we can really serve well is sales and marketing. So the people who are saying we've got a lot of internet data about how people are engaging with maybe an e-commerce site or a, you know, a web funnel of some kind. And then we've got all this ancillary data we want to combine 
to give us some understanding of our customers and increase a goal like conversion. And they can build those kinds of dashboards with some of the proprietary tools that are out there, but they're going to spend a lot and they're going to be really constrained in terms of the way these folks bill is either usage, so how much data are you processing, or seats. So you know you have to limit how many people in your company can participate. And, and those are both limiting in different ways. And a lot of companies say, you know, we're a huge business. We have a thousand people we want to be able to involve in this process, and we don't really want to pay for a thousand seats. And that's often why they turn to Meltano. The problem of sales and marketing needing better understanding of their data, are the sales and marketing teams equipped to solve this problem, or do they typically bring in a data scientist to help them with some kind of back-end engineering, like like standing up Meltano? Yeah, generally they will bring someone in. I wish I could say that I thought sales and marketing had folks who could do this themselves, and I think that's the future. But today, in big companies, you see they'll have a dedicated analyst who's very technical, or they'll have an engineer. You've probably seen um, a lot of companies have the t- job title for economist in these teams. And those people can set up Meltano. Meltano is not extremely technical to set up, so you don't need to write a bunch of custom code, but it is nice and helpful to know how to deploy to a server, for example, because it is self-hosted. So they will utilize a resource like that. Meltano, the acronym, just to repeat it again, it's Model, Extract, Load, Transform, Analyze, Notebook, and Orchestrate. These are not sequential, right? These are not in any particular order. These are just the different components of the data engineering lifecycle that Meltano helps you with? Yes, I think we thought at first they would be more sequential, but I think we've learned that, that, that they are not and that these happen in a lot of different orders depending on what's going on in our customers' business. The first stage of that data lifecycle is usually, I think, to, to extract. Like you have the data sitting in your data lake mm-hmm. or your database, What happens in the extract stage? So the extract stage, well, a lot of things can happen. Fundamentally, you want to get access to that data. But then the interesting thing is it can be in a lot of different formats. And so when you're extracting it, you're also preparing it to be put into a target. So in our case, a database or another format. So reading that data, being able to make sure it's clean, handling a lot of the exceptions that happen, but generally just getting the raw data out of whatever the source is, is what's happening in that step. After the data is extracted, it's often loaded into a tool like a data warehouse. Can you describe the extraction and load process in more detail? Let's see what's going to be the best thing to explain here. I mean, I think the most important thing that's happening in the load process is that we're then saying, okay, we need to understand what this is. So we're creating a schema and we're potentially also doing load and transform are very closely tied together. So we need to be able to understand what we're looking at. So generally what's happening in Meltano's ELT process is you're choosing a a tap or a source, you're choosing a target, and they may not be the same format. You may need to do things in the middle. So the load process is is kind of the preparation step. You might do some parsing, you might be reformatting certain fields, managing dates, managing strings, whatever, kind of depending on what you target you chose, but you're basically prepping the data and doing a certain amount of programmatic cleaning. Why do people need a warehouse for data, a data warehouse? What purpose does the tool of a data warehouse serve? <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've definitely taken down my production database with complex queries before. <laughs> so the warehouse has a lot of values, but one is just segmenting the data away from the production environment and maybe also only taking a subset of that data. So you know, we talk about big data, and I think the truth is tools are very powerful now. We, can, we could probably pull down a lot of raw data, but we don't need to. And so performance is a, is a really big piece 
Uh, and the last is making it understandable. So a lot of times in the warehouse, you will do things like defining what things mean. Maybe you have a data dictionary. And so this is sort of the place where we begin to say, this is not data that's just meant for a machine to look at. This is now data meant for humans. And the warehouse begins to make that understandable. So that's, in the past, people might have called it a reporting database. Basically, it's just kind of separating it away from the raw production environment. Can you give an an example or two of operations that people might perform on a data warehouse and how it might serve a real world purpose? Sure. So let's just imagine that you're pulling in all your website data from Google Analytics, and you're also pulling in all of your purchase data from Stripe. I'm just to kind of use a simple example. So you've got some kind of e-commerce site. The data warehouse is a good place to mash up that data in a very simple way in terms of if you have unique identifiers, if you have duplicate data, if you have things in weird I'm using simple examples, but you could have some much more complex formats. And this would be the place where you would begin to rationalize you know, how that data could work together. It's still fairly raw. So you're looking at it maybe for the first time. Like a lot of people don't necessarily run MySQL on their, on their computer and look at the actual production database. So this is often the first place you're seeing it. So this is also where you might do things like mapping, renaming tables, renaming columns, starting to make things make sense to a human being. And that's a lot of the preparation process. Some of that is done programmatically or can be done programmatically, but often it's done by human beings who are trying to you know, prepare that data to be consumed by other people kind of down the chain. And the reason you might do this is I just listed two data sources, but you could easily have thousands and you need some kind of sandbox to work with to do that. And generally you're not merging these things together into production. You may not even be able to join these tables in a production environment. So this is kind of the first place where you can do that. I think we've covered extract and load pretty well at this point. What about transform? Can, can you reiterate what happens during a transform? What is a transform? So a transform is sort of the final step to getting the data into a usable format. So you might say, hey, I've got this Stripe data, I've got this Google Analytics data, but I want to put this into a Postgres database or a MySQL database, or I want to put it into some proprietary third-party warehouse of, you know, with some format requirements. So at this point, we have to meet those requirements often in order for it to be consumed by some other tool that's not inside Meltano, potentially. And so that's where you would need to actually do things to the schema or do things to the data itself to make it conform to those standards. Most of those things can be done without having to have human intervention. But fundamentally, at the end, a successful transform is going to allow you to consume the data in the format that you intended. We can use data that's in the data warehouse to build dashboards and predictive models and do analysis. This would be the M and the A of Meltano, the model and the analysis of the Meltano acronym. What are people doing during the model and analyze phases? Well, before we jump to that, I guess one thing I want to point out is Meltano doesn't warehouse data. So since Meltano is self-hosted, people are hosting their own data. I always found this very elegant. I, at first, I was very skeptical, by the way, of, of Meltano being self-hosted. It's very elegant because Meltano itself doesn't have to touch any PII or, or, or touch your data or really see your data. But what's happening you know, at the next step in the process is generally you say you want to have some kind of insight. Uh, so let's, say, let's use our Google Analytics plus Stripe example again. Maybe we want to say, what is the relationship between visitors to your purchase page and revenue? So you kind of want to get maybe like average purchase value or average value of a page view. Well, none of that data lives in just one place or the other. So you would probably build some kind of nice little histogram saying, you know, over the last few months, 
the average visitor to your purchase page, you know, their value went from an, like a dollar to ten dollars because your conversion rate went up. But you want to see the relationship between data that was in these two different disparate sets. So the analyze step could be just outputting a bunch of results, but often it's also creating some kind of visual. My most common use case for this in past lives was this is what I'm going to use to make a slide, or this is what I'm going to use to make a case for a change, or I'm going to send this table of data to some business person and and be like, hey, I have support for something I want to do in the company. So the analyze step is really the step where we're trying to tell a story with the data. Uh, And we're trying to do it in a way that, you know, we could actually go back and recreate the analysis if we had to so that we can kind of support our decision making with facts. That's generally what's happening there. What you described about Meltano not actually including a data warehouse. So, I mean, we've, we've kind of glossed around the edges of what exactly Meltano is. I think it's a, it's a sequence of tools. It's a set of tools that help you frame your data engineering workflow more effectively. People might already have a database, a data lake, a data warehouse. They might have some other things but they aren't exactly sure of how to get the data from one place to another, how to eventually get it into dashboards. Could you just take a step back and and give us the lay of the land for the the things that Meltano does not include that it might sit over within a company that already has some, you know, some software, obviously? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So the taps and the targets we've built, so the things that pull the data in and transform it are both from Singer, which is open source. For transforms, we're using DBT. So if you're already using DBT, then you will be getting that you know, bundled inside Meltano or you could you know, use your own. We use for, for notebooks, we use Jupyter Notebooks and for orchestration, we're using Apache Airflow. So the only two things Meltano is offering that is kind of Meltano unique right now are the way we're doing modeling of the data set. So we have kind of our own M5.0 file structure that you're using to describe the data model. And then our UI, which is like a very, very basic, I would say fairly ugly, but functional kind of dashboard. Down the road, I think both of those, we'd like to replace them with the best in class open source. I think we haven't really decided what we think that is yet. And for now, what we'll do is we're just making those as bare bones as possible. Our goal is to not do anything proprietary that is going deep. We're much more focused on how we can be stitching things together kind of at the the thin, flat platform layer. Like if we can't find anything, I'd be shocked, first of all. But if we can't, then of course we could go and we could go deep in one of those areas. But the reality is each one of these steps, there's like multi-billion dollar product companies built in each one. So to think we're going to build a better dashboarding solution than someone who's spending all their time and resources on that is it's probably not realistic. But so that's kind of how we've divided things up today. Coming back to the acronym, the N in Meltano stands for notebook. That is Jupyter notebook. Mm-hmm. Describe what the purpose of a Jupyter notebook is. So Jupyter notebooks are really powerful for doing analysis if you understand how to write Python. Or even if you just have very, very simple querying skills, there's lots of great copy pasting you can do. But Jupyter notebooks are shareable. You can check them in and out with Git, which is also really great. And they're going to let you do much more sophisticated analysis than what our UI can provide. So if you are at all technical, you're going to immediately see Meltano's analysis UI and say, okay, that's great for some pretty basic tables, but I need to do something you know, much more complicated. 
So Jupyter Notebooks makes a database connection to Meltano. We provide it embedded as part of Meltano, but you can also just use the database connection criteria we give you and go use it separately. Also awesome because you can run it locally on your on your laptop and take it with you for analysis. You don't have to be connected to the internet. So very powerful tool and pretty much what most data analysts want to be using. So if we didn't have this, I just don't think we would really be able to serve our core customer because it's still the preferred way to do analysis. Jupyter Notebook was not always the preferred way to do analysis. It seems to have really caught on in the last couple of years. Why did it catch on and, and why did it take a while? Oh, to me, I would be curious what other people say, but I think it's kind of like this great prosumer product. So it's, it's powerful. It's really powerful. The same way that Excel can be very powerful or very simple, depending on how far you want to go. But the barrier to entry to using it has dropped a lot, I think, in the past few years. I mean, I think people who never expected to write code and thought they would you know, be analysts, but in a more Excel-driven world are finding themselves using Jupyter very successfully. I think that's just a huge part of uh, it's gotten also gotten better. It's got more connectors. They've been really fantastic with rolling out new features. So I think it's just it's the right balance of usable and powerful and kind of globally accessible. So it's not super proprietary. Like people are using it in all sorts of different environments. So I just think it's they've struck a really beautiful balance. The overall workflow of these different tools that we're discussing, things like the the notebook, the uh, Singer, DBT, all of this this stuff is managed by an orchestrator, and you use Airflow as the orchestrator. Explain what the role of an orchestrator is. Yes. So by default, the orchestrator is, is not turned on, but the simplest verb to use is just to think, okay, now I've got my pipeline working. I want to schedule it. I want it to run regularly, every day, every hour. I want it to kick off reports or, or business processes. And so the orchestrator is automating the process of stepping through the pipeline. It's also handling exceptions. So you may have situations where one of your data sources produces corrupted data or where there's not a target available because maybe you haven't spun up an instance for your Postgres DB. I don't know. There's a million possible things that could go wrong. And so we need to know what to do in the case that things don't go as planned. The orchestrator allows you to define all these different catches for what that could look like. And so a simple pipeline, you might be thinking, well, you just run it every day and get an exception report. But as people start to have you know, hundreds of different data sources, kicking off dozens of different processes, you can imagine that that stack trace of what's going on begins to become really complicated. And Apache Airflow is, is really built to handle that. I would say most users right now, Airflow is maybe one of the harder things to adopt for them. And I think there's some really interesting companies out there trying to abstract it a bit. We provide a really simple schedule verb just to kind of warm people up to the idea of orchestration. But for our most sophisticated customers, again, this is just something probably already using. And so they expect it to work this way, or they would expect a tool like this to be involved. And so we just bundle all these things together. So you get them all out of the box. When a company would, if a company was to adopt Meltano, and they've, again, they've already got their database and or data lake, they've got some data warehouse, maybe they're using Redshift or Snowflake. How do you, in an ideal world, how would their lives change after they started using Meltano? Well, I think big one is just they could try more things with their data. So if they do have this data warehouse and they have a lot of things they've been wanting to explore from an analysis perspective, the adoption time would become much lower. So any target or tap we support would then be available to them 
So if maybe before they were limited by, okay, we've got Redshift and Snowflake, and that's kind of all we know how to work with. Um, maybe they don't have a full-time engineer to build the connectors that they want. Whatever we have available is going to open those doors for them, which is a great argument for us building a really good community of people constantly creating more value. The other piece is it's going to do some amount of the decision-making for them. I mean, you certainly can use whatever you want with Meltano, but we do believe that we've chosen some of the best tools. And so as we grow and as we get bigger, we hope we can kind of guide people down a path of kind of least resistance to getting value rather than spending a lot of time stitching this stuff together and, and choosing which tools and which steps in the beginning when you really just need to get a business answer to someone or you want to change, you know, make an impact in some way. Uh, the time to value should be a lot shorter. That's the fundamental thing that should change, whether it's in the individual steps or just in terms of kicking out something that's either an automated business process or a dashboard at the end. I think I'm starting to see the outline of the problems that you're solving here because you think of a prototypical company where they've got this operational database. Again, maybe they've got like a data lake where they're throwing their logs, but they've also got Google Analytics which is sitting in Google, they've got, you know, Stripe data, maybe that's how they're handling all their e-commerce purchases. And that data is lying there waiting to be used, but it's not in an accessible form. It hasn't been ported into the data warehouse. You're solving that problem in a modular fashion such that, you know, the, the, the numerous other analytics tools that or numerous other APIs and analytics tools and platforms that are gathering your data somewhat passively mm-hmm. are now accessible. Exactly. And you don't want to have to learn how to use each API because there are right. so many. So each API is a data source. Google Analytics has an API, for example, but it's probably not actually worthwhile to become an expert on 50 different APIs. It's, it's just like not worth the time it would take for your team to do that. So instead you're just saying, okay, cool. Business people have this stuff over here. You've adopted these SaaS tools. I think another piece, by the way, is with the proliferation of SaaS, you've also got a ton more places where data is living. And then you've got your engineers who have access to kind of, like you said, your logs and your more production data and and a lot of the more like kind of nuts and bolts. But yeah, so it's just really division of labor and and making it so Meltano can carry some of that burden. If I wanted to integrate my Google Analytics data, is there just a config file within Meltano that I fill out? Correct. Yes. So you'd be giving us some of your connection information, and then we would be connecting to the API on your behalf and pulling out your data. Out of the M-E-L-T-A-N-O, again, you have these defaults, these swappable defaults in each letter of the acronym. Mm -hmm. What have you had to build yourself, and what parts are you taking off the shelf? Maybe we could just walk through the the acronym at this point. Sure. In fact, there's a great little table on the front page of our website that I'm looking at now to help myself talk you through this. You may want to look at as well. But yeah, so in the Meltano step for model, we've built our own kind of file defining model standard. So it's called an M50 file. We're actually exploring, by the way, kicked off after the Looker acquisition, other possibilities here in terms of a more open model standard. But right now, this is something we're building ourselves in the M step. For extract and load, we're using Singer's taps and targets, and that's been working great for us. And so we just continuously are porting or integrating what's already there. That will come to some point where we're either going to need to build a lot more taps and contribute them to Singer or start to build our own, since there's only so many. For transform, we're using DBT. 
the analyze step is Meltano's UI. So as I mentioned, this is like a very basic UI today. Like uh, we're not really trying to be the next Tableau. We're not trying to necessarily do all those incredible visuals. We'd love to integrate, you know, really awesome open source alternative down the road. And then notebooks using Jupyter and Orchestrate or using Apache Airflow. What, you know, what you mentioned about the, not trying to necessarily have the best, I mean, this is the, I, when I interviewed Sid about just GitLab itself, it's what's so interesting about this this pattern that is is being applied in Meltano and also in GitLab. Just the idea that let's just kind of like let's build what we can, take what we can get off the shelf that's open source. You know, it doesn't have to be perfect. You know, perfect is the enemy of the good. You know, you just get something working because that's so much better than cobbling together the things that may be best in class but are ultimately going to have a bunch of integration issues. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be humble about how hard these problems are. So we want a working end-to-end solution. That's the most important thing every day. You know, the question is, are we making that end-to-end solution faster and easier for users? And each one of these steps is so interesting and could be the source of, you know, 10 years of, of work. And there's huge businesses, as I mentioned, built in each of these spaces. So it's tempting. There's so many interesting technology problems, design problems. So it requires a little bit of discipline on the part of our team, you know, we actually catch ourselves all the time going deeper than we should when we need to be going broad. It's not that we shouldn't make things good. It's just you don't want to sacrifice the end-to-end value to make something pretty or to add a feature that you know, maybe a very small number of users are going to need. Or if they do need it, they should probably go with the proprietary solution. Coming back to the, the acronym with the M of model, you use Meltano model, right, for that phase? Yes. Could you refresh what happens? What is the what describe what the model step is and explain what Meltano model is? So the model step is about creating reusable business logic. So this is where you're defining the relationship between different pieces of data or even just what they mean. This is kind of after you've transformed your data and you have it in the format that you want, you you start to need to put it into a table with headers or a chart with, you know, it's a graph and it's got labels. And the headers and the labels, while they are decorative, they're also really important because if you're looking at the data for the first time or giving this off to somebody else, say you're the engineer and I'm the analyst, if you hand this off to me and it's not clear what's going on, I have to go parse the business logic. It's kind of like what I was saying with learning each new API. Each one has a bunch of data in it. If you've used Stripe a whole bunch, you might be able to figure out what some of the fields are, but a lot of it's pretty esoteric. So the model is where you kind of are turning this into something shareable and reusable, you're also defining possibly fundamental things like what is revenue or what is recurring revenue or what is a contract value. And you're also defining you know, what the exception cases could be. And that's really powerful as well because uh, you can control that. So you can imagine checking that in and saying, you know, you know, we're kind of at the high level describing what the business means, what its dictionary looks like. And then everybody else who's also using that version of that instance of Meltano has to conform to those models. So in big data teams, it's often a hierarchy, right? There's the senior people who kind of are working with the data and defining kind of at the core, what are we trying to achieve, whether it's like a dashboard of KPIs or going to produce an S1 or whatever that is. And then within those business rules, you've got many other analysts doing work. So the modeling step is crucial for making sure we're all speaking the same language in the same company. So a model is like a uniform object format that throughout different areas of the company, we can agree on 
what is the shape of a certain object? What are the fields that it might have? So that different different areas of the company can have a uh, a relatively consistent view of of the data. Exactly, you said it beautifully. Okay, so what about Meltano model? Why was there not something off the shelf for doing? Or what what did people use off the shelf? Or in or what what are the alternatives to Meltano model? Mm, I don't think I have a great answer for you here. I mean, there definitely is. Uh, Looker has LookML. There's Open Model Sphere. We list these on our site and also Matillion. But I think this is one area. So the places where we, so Meltano model and Meltano UI were probably the places where I would say they are the most dispersed. There's so many different ways people are solving this problem today. I mean, this is probably, in my opinion, one of the best reasons that Looker got acquired is because creating a way of thinking about this that business people can understand is really powerful. And so I think that this is you know, somewhere where we would like to continue the conversation now of saying like, great, that's proprietary and, and that's awesome for the people who use Looker, but what about this the broader world? I don't think there is a great solution. And we actually blogged a couple weeks ago on the Meltano blog about a project that we've kicked off. I'm blanking on there's a small company that had just kind of tried to launch something very similar in the open source space. I want to make sure to drop their name because we really were grateful that they reached out to us. It's a company called Rakam, R-A-K-A-M dot I-O. And we started collaborating with them to define an open source alternative to LookML, which could be the replacement for a Meltano model at some point. I think that what we're doing today is fine, but it's not necessarily going to be the best final solution for our customers. It's still a little limited in terms of what you can do in a file structure. There's maybe other ways to approach it that, that could be more powerful. So. I'd say we're still very early in exploring what we want to do here. There is a project called Singer that you use for, I think it's the extract stage? Yes, and the transform stage as well. And the transform. I had not heard of Singer. What is Singer? So Singer is an ETL company. They have both proprietary and open source solutions. So we work with their open source taps and targets, and they were actually, I want to say they were recently, were they acquired? They're sponsored by Stitch, so they're actually a, an open source project. And so Stitch is providing a much bigger kind of offering now. They're, I think they were acquired by, who is it, Talend, I think. So they're kind of trying to begin to offer an end-to-end pipeline solution as well. But the Singer open source project is kind of a subset of what they do. So we contribute back to their community. And I think Stitch probably uses that that data as well, those contributions as well. And so the Singer taps, what do they do in, in more detail? So these are the extractors that pull the data from the APIs and define kind of what fields we're going to be pulling and how to format them. So does the Singer ecosystem have these tools for, you know, like if you want Google Analytics data or you want Stripe data, that is that something you can take off the shelf? You could potentially take them off the shelf. The challenge is that they're not integrated into anything. So you can take the tap, but then where are you putting the data? So you can write it to a JSON formatted file, but then the question would just be, what do you, where are you going to put that into? So for the people who can write code, this is great. But for the people who either don't want to maintain code or can't write it at all, then there's just this questionable, it's great, I've extracted this data, but now what? Yeah. What is DBT? So let's talk about DBT. So we're using DBT for our transform. And I guess that's the simplest way to explain it. So 
it's kind of a different a way of defining what format you want the data. So we talked about the ELT process. So at the end, what we want is we want the data to be in a format that we can use. And DBT is an open source community that builds a bunch of different tools for data transformation. So as you can imagine, all these different raw data, you you could have a lot of different things going on. You could have different data warehouses. You could have different exceptions. And DBT is sort of, we talked a little bit earlier about why would you have a warehouse. It's sort of letting you skip that step in the sense of kind of creating a virtual warehouse where you hold all that data, you produce what would be the equivalent of a warehouse, and you can use really whatever format you want, uh, and then you produce the transformation. So rather than kind of staying in a warehouse state, you're actually getting the final result, the final transformed data. So when you're using Meltano, you're not necessarily spinning up like, you know, a huge third-party warehouse in the, like in the load step, but you're virtually doing the same thing. And we use their technology oh. to complete that. So you could use Meltano without a data warehouse? You could, yes. I That's see. That's why it's so great, because it saves you a bunch of money. I don't necessarily know that you need one in a lot of cases. Right. That's pretty interesting, because, yeah, there's probably a lot of companies... I mean, what, what do you think, is, what's the threshold? Like maybe if you have more than, I don't know, some number of terabytes of data or do you have any, any idea what the threshold might be where you start to need a data warehouse? I don't know what the threshold would be, but I think the logic would probably be more about when you're doing a lot of things that are repeated and you just want to make sure, it, it probably is a performance issue. It's like at some point it makes more sense to, to keep it than to spin it up every time. But I don't know the answer to that question. I mean, I think it's much less expensive than it used to be, but it's another thing to maintain. So avoiding that, especially for a team that maybe is not like the dedicated big data team, maybe they're just running like a, you know, biz ops process on the side, they probably can't necessarily get the $25,000 a year or whatever they're going to need to keep that warehouse running. So I think it's very budget driven in terms of who is the user, not necessarily how much data, if that makes sense. Like, it's easy to get that kind of budget if you're the normally the team that they expect to warehouse tons of data. I think it's a lot tougher when it's like, the FPNA team, you're trying to run an experiment for, for three months and saying, you know, we, we want to warehouse terabytes of data. We want to spend all this money. And people are like, well, that's just not what you guys do. Why do you need that? Does that make sense? It's like more of a user-driven thing. Absolutely. Yeah, it makes complete sense. So assuming we're talking about this prototypical case of a company that's adopting Meltano, they've got some sales and marketing data that they want to integrate with their transactional data there's a sales and marketing team, maybe a, a data engineer is is coming over to help them set it up. What does that adoption process look like? Like if I if I'm let's say I'm I I work at some, you know, potential e-commerce company right now and I'm thinking about my data engineering problems and I'm thinking, wow, this Meltano thing sounds pretty appealing. What am I gonna have to do to get started? So you can get started with Meltano pretty quickly in terms of just locally getting it up and running. We have a quick start with a Docker image. So you can get going and have a really simple self-hosted instance in 10 minutes. But I think the big, the big thing that really drives adoption is figuring out what are the data sources and what are their business values. So like I, I think everyone has some, some data they can just kind of hook up to. But the, the more interesting thing is what's the adoption process and the relationship between the data engineer and, and the business person they're probably partnered with. So deploying Meltano, like tech, the technology side, is easy. Figuring out what you want to get at the end, that's the interesting and more challenging conversation. So I think what often is happening is someone who who can't parse the you know Google Analytics API or whatever, someone in marketing, for example, might 
you know, go to engineering, or maybe they don't even go to engineering, they just go to their boss asking for resources saying, hey, we've got data locked up inside Marketo and Stripe and Google Analytics and, you know, 10 other things. And they start messing around with like Zapier or other tools that they can use. And pretty quickly, they just discover like, okay, this is really cool. Like we can do something really interesting, but we need to do it in a sustainable way that's using persistent data. And so I think that's really what actually is happening is there's this funny meeting point where Meltano is not the first time you would have this problem and and deploy something like this. It's probably just the first time you would do it in a way that then becomes a lasting tool rather than like a one-time fun experiment that was done by the marketing department with a spreadsheet. Eventually, of course, this whatever prototypical company that adopts Meltano to get their data engineering house in order Eventually, they'll get sophisticated Mm -hmm. and they'll want to use things like maybe TensorFlow or some other machine learning tool. Is there any integration process that you've started to work on there or is that that a, a disjoint set of problems? I definitely don't think it's disjoint, but we haven't worked on it yet. I think we have so much we need to do just in terms of making sure we get this pipeline piece working really well. You certainly can take the data that is processed through Meltano and use it in those types of workflows or with different tools. But yeah, no, not yet. Personally, just given my own background you know, with the machine learning team in my previous company, I would be shocked if we don't head that direction eventually. But there's so many problems to, worth solving in this data pipeline step that I think we've got our work cut out here probably for the next year or two. And if the community organically moves that direction and there's their contributions, they're certainly welcome. But we just haven't actually heard too much about that from our users yet. But we're early, so we'll see. Is it a best practice to typically have data go through a data warehouse before it lands in TensorFlow? Because I can imagine you want to do a bunch of like pre-processing or something before you put it in a machine learning framework. Or, or is there just not really best practices around that? Oh, I think there certainly are. I mean, I think if you're talking about cleaning a training data set, then yes, absolutely, you would probably want to produce a a clean set just because you're trying to manage a lot of different things at once. It's nice to not have additional exceptions coming from dirty data. So yeah, I I definitely could see building a data pipeline that's just doing kind of cleaning and removing of of things that are going to create issues in your experiment with Meltano. That's definitely something you could do. We just don't have the connector at the end. I guess what what you could say is you could use Airflow to kick that off. So you could have orchestrations send it over to TensorFlow. We just don't really like think of that as kind of part of, it's kind of like orchestration is sort of like saying, okay, anything you do after this step, like it's cool. You can hook up anything you want to Airflow, but was sort of out of our hands, I guess at that point, that's our handoff point. Yeah, I mean, you could probably say the same for, I mean, I think the data warehouses like Snowflake probably has a lot of integrations to TensorFlow, something Mm -hmm. like TensorFlow. Let's talk about the management and the software development process. You're the general manager of Meltano. What does that job entail? <laughs> Great question. I'm. It's changing all the time. Right now, I am the engineering manager, program manager, the product manager, the marketing manager, the sales manager. I have four engineers on the team. They're all very senior and wonderfully self-managed, I would say. I'm very grateful to them. But yeah, right now, it really just comes down to prioritizing what we need to do next. I spend a ton of time dogfooding, writing issues and talking to the community, blogging, kind of making sure that what we're getting, what we're building gets out to the world. But I'm definitely still pretty down in the details with the team. You know, with four people, there's only so much we can do each week. So choosing 
we do a release every Monday. So choosing very carefully what we do so that there's incremental value every week is really the name of the game. I've been on the team about four months before that. This team was led by GitLab CEO, who I think you spoke to recently. And so my role is really to remove that distraction from him and keep the project moving forward and remove barriers for the engineering team. How was this project initially ideated? Like, Who had the idea to just sort of say, let's apply the same lessons of GitLab to data engineering? Well, my understanding is it really began as an internal project at GitLab over a year ago. Uh, as the company began to scale, they had, of course, all their own sets of data and dashboards they wanted to produce. And so I think it started out as something where it was like, well, let's solve this problem for ourselves. And as we looked around at different tools that could have been purchased, realizing like, oh man, like this is actually going to be very expensive to solve with other software. Now, to be fair, it turned out Meltano is so early and GitLab is growing so fast that GitLab actually needs you know, to use other tools right now because we have a board to satisfy and we have a lot of you know, internal stakeholders. So I think that really you know, indicates where Meltano is at in our development. But that is the genesis of the project. And Meltano today is probably best adopted by you know, slightly smaller companies that are extremely scrappy, trying to save money. And you know, GitLab is in a place where it's just growing super fast and, and needs a lot more than what we've currently built. Describe the division of labor among your team. Well, I try to basically make it so that engineers can just write software all day, if at all possible. We have very few recurring meetings. We've got a rough roadmap, but truly we're trying not to lock in too far into the future. So I would say I'm a janitor in terms of I manage the milestone planning and the main meetings and spend a lot of time writing very detailed bugs and detailed dog fooding kind of issues so that we can fix, fix things, kind of add polish. We have two engineers who focus on the front end. So we've kind of got the engineering team kind of layered in terms of layers of abstraction of the product. So we've got an engineer who's kind of outward facing, marketing facing, managing the site, the docs, and a lot of the you know, polish for the UI. We've got a front end engineer who truly he's more full stack, but I would say he's, he's serving as our designer and he's building most of the Meltano UI. And then we have two back end engineers, one who's more on the data engineering side and one who's really just like a full stack backend engineer. And that's a lot of kind of wiring up how we serve what originally was a command line product. So we build everything at the command line level first, kind of serving a layer, an edge to the, to the UI so that we can integrate all those features. So yeah, it's kind of a full plate for each person involved. And then we also have, I'd say, two or three more regular community contributors right now who are, I would say, making MRs every couple weeks and then a few kind of other dabblers. So I'd say at any given time, the team is maybe like four to six engineers in a given week that are making merge requests against the project. What's the biggest challenge you've encountered so far? I mean, I think really at this point now, we just want to go faster. I think it's still what I was saying at the very beginning of our call, the discipline to continue to go broad when it feels sometimes like you want to go and polish and go deep. I think that is not intuitive. I think it's much more satisfying to go and just craft something and hone it and make it perfect. And so we are walking through each step of the Meltano acronym kind of as a team, touching each step, making it better and moving on and trying to make that rotation that N plus one uh, cycle as fast as possible. And it's kind of painful because sometimes you just get to a step where you're like, oh, but this is still ugly. I don't want to move on. Or this isn't useful yet. I don't want to move on. But we're finding that we ship fastest if we continue to make that progression happen over and over again. Much of what 
we have discussed is about engineering and tooling, but as you mentioned earlier, the most acute problem might be communication. How should data engineers be interacting with software developers and other members of the world, like sales and marketing teams? Yeah, that's a tall order. I think this is probably going to be where you know our, our, the core of our marketing resides. My, <laughs> but I, what I'll say is, you got to talk in stories because it's got to have a payoff. Like a pretty dashboard with no point just doesn't really matter at the end of the day. I think that's probably the place where people struggle. There's things that are technically really cool, but they don't add a lot of value. And there's also things that are curiosities in business, but don't really drive you know end results. And so getting good at talking in stories so that the end is in mind before you embark on building these data pipelines is, I think, someone, everyone in that relationship is responsible for doing better. What's something that you've learned about the world of data engineering that you didn't know before you started working on Meltano? I think I thought expected certain things to be more standardized than they are. I mean, that we talked a bit about the model files. I also think the world of APIs is far less standard than I expected the way we talk about and think about different pieces of data. I think I had lived a little bit in my previous role. I mean, I was the CEO. I was the recipient of a beautiful analysis and beautiful dashboards. And even though I was able to go and query the data myself, I just didn't really understand I don't know. I think the idea of big data is like hard to hold in your head. Just what it means to what big means. It's not just the quantity. It's also just the diversity. And as so as we work at all these different taps in particular, it's like building printer drivers. Like every single one is a little bit different. So I think that adds a lot of complexity. And I think it is to me screams opportunity, opportunity to solve annoying problems that most people don't want to think about day to day. I just didn't really realize how vast that was. Danielle, thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. It's been really fun talking to you. Thank you. Wow. 